Bill, come on up. Uh, we want to pray for you guys. Uh, and elders, come on up. Uh, they are going, if I understand, in two weeks? Uh, he leaves tomorrow. I leave on Saturday. Okay. And they're going to be going, obviously, to Ukraine, but then also to... Kazakhstan uh, and Kyrgyzstan. Ka Kazakhstan, time. Kyrgyzstan, which for the first time to set up a something so that we can continue to minister. Uh, I'll tell you what, it's just exciting to see. You saw the last picture up there. That was the first group of students from the missionary program now going out to other countries. So, you know, it's just neat to see how, how wonderful God is and how he wants to use this very special school in Kremenchuk. But let's pray, okay? I want to pray for these guys. Father... We thank you for your servants. You are a good God and you have a great plan. And so we seek you and ask that you would first keep them safe, but that you would bless them. Bless Alexander as he gets to go home and see his family, his wonderful family. But Lord, I pray that as they go to Kyrgyzstan and Kyrgyzstan, that you would grant them favor with the people there. They would be able to uh, connect with these seminaries there as well, these schools, and, and that uh, your word would be able to uh, just ring out throughout the whole world. Amen. But bless this time, use them for your glory, and bring them back home safely. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Hey, Phil. Yes. Phil, not Bill. I'll let you have that. Hey, Bill. <laughs> okay. Uh, I do have one announcement myself. You know, each month we have a different real activity. That means uh, it's a, a, an opportunity that we give you to be able to share the love of Jesus in a practical way. And each month it's something different. Uh, and this month what we're planning on doing, we're going to go out, it should be in your bulletins as well, we're going to go out a couple different times this month. We're going to go to St. Cloud State University and give away Pop-Tarts. Okay? We're going to give away Pop-Tarts and just and then offer prayer. So this is what we're going to do. And just to show them the love of Jesus in a practical way. And, uh, and it should be fun. Now, I know for some of you it might not work. Right? We're going to be going during the week, during the day. So you might have to take a day off from work, okay? So, so uh, and some actually work there, so you could be able to come and we'll give the, the Pop-Tarts. But, uh, but put that in your, you know, just plan on that and be praying for us if you're not able to make it because we really want to have an impact on the students there, okay? Let's pray. Father, we do praise you. I, as I think about this passage of Scripture that speaks of your wrath, I see that you are holy. You are great. You are awesome. And you will judge sin. But I also know that you are merciful. And you've provided a way of escape through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you. Please convict us now and use us now before it's too late. We want to have the greatest impact possible on this planet before you come back. So use us, and, and thank you so much that we see that we're just a part of this. Your grand plan stretches 
through the ages. It's your church has always been there. And that it's not just here in St. Cloud, but it's in Ukraine. It's in Kyrgyzstan. It's all over the planet where your name is being glorified. For you are the famous one. And so please teach us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. It's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. And we are at this section here that I'm entitling the Super Bowl of God's wrath. The final seven bowls of the wrath of God at the very end of time. But before we read the passage, I want uh, to show you a video clip that I think is from a movie that many of you are familiar with, and I think you'll like this, so watch this video clip. At ease. Well, now that there's just us, would you please tell me all your names again and how old you are? I'm Lisa. I'm 16 years old and I don't need a governess. Well, I'm glad you told me, Liesl. We'll just be good friends. I'm Friedrich. I'm 14. I'm impossible. <laughs> really? Who told you that, Friedrich? Fräulein Josephine. Four governesses ago. I'm Brigitte. Who, um... Didn't tell me how old you are, Louisa. I'm Brigitte. She's Louisa. She's 13 years old, and you're smart. I'm 10, and I think your dress is the ugliest one I ever saw. Brigitte, you shouldn't say that. Why not? Don't you think it's ugly? Of course. But Fräulein Hilda's was ugliest. I'm Kurt. I'm 11. I'm incorrigible. Congratulations. What's incorrigible? I think it means you want to be treated like a boy. Mm -hmm. I'm Marta, and I'm going to be seven on Tuesday, and I'd like a pink parasol. Well, pink's my favorite color, too. Yes, you're Gretel. And you're five years old? My, you're practically a lady. <laughs> no, I... Okay, you don't get to watch anymore. <laughs> I know. You know, I was going to actually cut it off after the second boy, because that's my point that I wanted to make, the, the, but I knew you'd get really mad at me if I did that. So, uh, but did you notice, he said he was incorrigible, okay? And then he asked the question, what's incorrigible? She gave him a faulty definition of what incorrigible means. So uh, I'm not going to ask you, because the first service I asked them and nobody knew. So let me read from Webster's Dictionary. It means incapable of being reformed or corrected. Now, obviously, the boy was not incorrigible, was he? In fact, if you watch the movie, the three-and-a-half-hour-long movie, you will find out that they are reformed and do fine, okay? But uh, at any rate, he was not incorrigible. But what we're going to see in our passage is these people at the end who truly are incorrigible, incapable of being reformed or corrected. Unrepentant sinners will be judged in the end, even though they don't think they should be. In our passage, we see the Super Bowl of God's wrath is coming. Let's read. 
Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores but they refused to repent of what they had done. Now next week we'll complete the last two bowls and see the battle of Armageddon, but we want to look at this concept here that we're seeing in this passage on the wrath of God. Now let's remember where the context of this passage, chapter 15 was an interlude, but in chapter 14 at the end of the chapter we saw the, the great harvest two different harvests, the first one being the rapture and then the second one being that of the wicked people who would experience the wrath of God. This is what chapter 16 is talking about in greater uh, capacity and form. And so we want to see this. What does it mean? What is going to happen at the very end? And the end for the incorrigible will be devastating. But this should break our hearts and move us to action now we don't want to just read this and go oh well ho-hum what how can it impact us today and that's our prayer so let's walk through this in verses one through seven we answer the question what is the nature of God's wrath it begins in verses one and two God's wrath is his just anger towards evil. Look at 1 and 2 again. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Here, these people who had, instead of embracing the gospel that was preached to them, they instead embraced the false prophet and the Antichrist and took the mark of the beast in which they trusted in, and then these festering sores came about, perhaps and possibly because of the mark of the beast, and that's uh, what we see here in this first aspect. But here we see that God's wrath is his just anger towards their evil. They rejected the grace God provided, that God offered them when uh, the gospel was presented to them, instead embraced the mark of the beast. 
want you to turn to Nahum chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 2 through 8, and we'll see another example of God pouring out his wrath because of a people who rejected his offer of repentance. In Nahum, if you remember, uh, Nahum is speaking about the Ninevites, the city of Nineveh. If you remember, Jonah went and spoke to Nineveh, and they actually did repent for a short time, but it didn't last. And we see here in Nahum that finally God is saying, that's it, you've had your chance. Nahum uh, is speaking to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Assyria was the world empire of that time. And here's what he says. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Here we see the awesome God pouring out his wrath upon the Ninevites because the time had come. Now the Lord is good and any who repented would receive his refuge. That's what we need to understand. And that the Lord, we see here in this passage, that the Lord is slow to anger. He waited. He waits patiently. The reason why we don't see the wrath yet in, that we're reading about in Revelation 16, the reason why God gave us the book of Revelation so that we would be prepared ahead of time is because God loves these people. He doesn't want to see anyone perish. And so we see he's slow to anger. But notice the second part of the verse, the Lord, uh, verse 3 in, in Nahum, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will punish all sin. I have a little note in my Bible on the side, written a note that I wrote some time ago. Conversion includes repentance which includes adopting a new worldview. The modern Western worldview has blurred distinctions between right and wrong. And within such a perspective, there's no place for the wrath and judgment of God. We don't hear about the wrath of God, and yet it's everywhere in Scripture, and we dare not embrace this faulty worldview that rejects the truth of God's wrath. He will punish all sin. God does not grade on a curve. I tell my students, I teach at the University of Northwestern, I tell my students, God does not grade on a curve, and neither do I. Okay. God's standard is perfection. He says he will punish the guilty. Now here, as you probably imagine, we're in a pretty tight spot because every one of us are guilty, aren't we? 
How are we to understand this? How does this fit? And we will see as we work through the passage. But it's important that we recognize he's slow to anger, but he will punish all sin. Slow to anger, a friend of mine shared about another friend of mine, uh, how he was in a car accident just this week. And he saw the car and he said, by all intents and purposes, nobody should have gotten out of that accident alive. And yet both the man and his son escaped basically unscathed. That man is not a believer yet. And I believe that God's given him another chance. God is slow to anger. He's patient. But as we'll see in our passage, he knows when someone is incorrigible incapable of being reformed or corrected verses 3 and 4 we see that God's wrath here is nature out of control under his control look at verse 3 the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood so we see here uh, that uh, the effects on nature, these uh, plagues are similar to the Egyptian plagues uh, that, uh, that Moses, when he led the people out of Israel, ex experienced. But here we see this devastation that everything in the sea dies. And by the way, that's an indication that this is not going to last very long, this time of the final bowls of God's wrath. Because we see that the world cannot last much longer after every single thing is dead in all of the waters. No, we can't last, but maybe a day or two. We're not, we're not exactly sure how long this is, but it seems very, very short. Uh, so we see this God's wrath is... Uh, nature out of control but under his control now in light of this a couple things that uh, that came to my mind first of all i would argue for a balanced view of ecology uh, when we see this ultimately at the end everything's going to be wrecked so how are we to understand our part in taking care of the planet i think genesis 1:28 gives us a great uh, perspective on that as well as our passage here you see we have two opposite groups usually over here we have people who basically worship the planet and uh, and and so we you know go to extremes over here but then we have people over here who say I ah, just take advantage of the planet see what we can get for it and it's all greed and money over here and I think the scriptures teach us we're supposed to use the planet for us. It was given to us for humans, but we're also supposed to be good stewards of the planet. And so there's a balance in this. In my opinion, an excellent example of this is Israel. If you've ever been there, Israel, they use the, uh, all the resources of their tiny little spot where they live but they use it to its fullest effect, but they also take care of and, uh, and have an ecological mindset in all of how they do it. They, I, th I think they are uh, a marvelous example of this if you want to you know, do some more study on that. But at any rate, according to this, it's all going to be wrecked, but then Jesus will fix it. <laughs> and it's going to be uh, wonderful in the end. But so I would argue for a balanced view of ecology, but also to be reminded of the signs of the end. 
okay? These signs, these effects on the planet are similar to what we already saw in the trumpets, but they're also similar to Matthew 24 when we looked at that passage uh, that shows the signs of the end. So I want you to turn to Matthew 24 and look at that, that passage again where we see what Jesus called the birth pains. He gave us an indication, a clue, as to how we can know if we're getting near the end. Matthew 24 specifically speaks of how we can know when the end will come. And he's, let me just start in verse 7 here. He says, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains, as you know, they, when the pain gets closer and closer and more and more in intensity, you know the baby's coming soon, right? These are birth pains. When these things begin to take place in more and more frequency and closer and closer together, you know we're getting close to the end. Specifically here, he refers to natural disasters, famines and earthquakes. In Luke's version of this passage, he adds the word pestilences or plagues. When these things take place, these are the birth pains. He goes on to say in verse 9, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. So we see persecution of the church will increase more and more to the very end. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. So we'll see a great apostasy, many leaving the church. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That seems to describe these people in Revelation 16. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come and so we see as we've seen through the book of revelation a great revival that takes place when the jewish and christian believers share their faith and so a great revival then we see how the angels will even present the gospel and so many will come to come to christ but here we see the birth pains, this is what it's going to be like prior to the very end, right up to the very end. Then we saw the trumpets, which intensify. So, if, so to speak, the, the birth pains is when it's going to be bad, and it seems like we are there. The things we're seeing in the world with the devastation and the hurricanes and so forth, it seems like we're moving in that direction. But then when the trumpets come about, that will be even worse. But here in our passage, the seven final bowls of God's wrath, that's when it's worst of all. But uh, I did want, I've, in, in doing some studies in this, uh, some peculiar things have been taking place, specifically with, uh, in reference to these plagues here with the the sea and the rivers turning into blood. There has been a phenomena taking place throughout the planet over the last few years that people cannot explain where rivers are turning like blood. They're becoming red like blood. Uh, here's a, a one example. This is the Yangtze River in China. This happened, I believe it was just last year. Once again, they said we have no idea what caused it. They have some possibilities and speculation but they have no idea what happened what caused the entire river to turn 
read like this for a time, but not just in the Yangtze, the Babylon River in Indonesia, another example of this. The Daldikan River in Russia, these are pictures of it, but we could go on and on. In Jamaica, Lebanon, Slovakia, Malaysia, Brazil, all of these places have experienced things like that where rivers and lakes all of a sudden have become like blood red. What is going on? I think it's an indication of the birth pains that we're getting close to the end and so we better be prepared and be ready for this whatever is coming up because God's wrath is his just anger towards evil God's wrath is nature out of control but under his control and then in verses 5 through 7 we see that God's wrath is his ultimate justice as judge of the universe Verse 5, then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God's wrath is his ultimate justice as judge of the universe. If you notice in our passage, it speaks of God as the judge. He is called the, the Holy One. This was the favorite phrase of Isaiah. He spoke of, of God as the Holy One of Israel. He says, you who are and who were. Did you notice something missing? And it is to come, right? In Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 4, he says, God is the one who is and who was and who is to come. But here we have the last part left out because this is when he does come. This is the very end. And that's what we're to understand. It obviously can't last much longer than this, as I shared, uh, with the waters becoming blood. But God is just, and he's pouring this out on these people who deserve it. Now, this brings up, and I want to ask this question. What is a bad judge like? If you think of a good judge and a bad judge, what would a bad judge be like? We don't have time to look at these verses up here, but if you were to write them down and look them up, they all describe what a bad judge would look like. And they would have in, this, in their description, a bad judge takes bribes, shows partiality, acquits the guilty, judges the innocent. In our system of jurisprudence, we've taken on the idea of blind justice. According to the Exodus 23 passage, you're not supposed to judge in favor of the poor or the rich. You're supposed to be everyone's judge the same. That's a good judge. I want you to look at Proverbs 17:15 because it also presents a problem for us. <laughs> Proverbs 17:15 In this passage, he says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. It's wrong to acquit the guilty. And remember, we saw in Nahum, God punishes all evil deeds. And so, what about us? We're all guilty. 
how does this play? How can God be a good judge and yet let us off? How does the cross fit in this whole scenario? Well, I want to explain by giving you very briefly an overview of God's grand plan through the covenants. Okay, this is a 10,000 foot level perspective here, but this is God's plan of how he can be just and holy, but also forgive us and bring us into his presence. So how can that work? Well, as we walk through the Bible, it starts out with the first covenant, the covenant of works. The covenant of works was given to Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 2. And basically, the covenant of works says, if you are perfect and you live up to this moral standard that's based on God's moral standards, then you will have paradise. And as you know, Adam and Eve blew it. But so have every one of us. So we can't come to him through the covenant of works. We see this covenant wrote, written in these other passages, but we see that his standard is perfection. And we are still under this covenant. He didn't just decide, okay, I won't have any moral standards anymore. We are still under this covenant, but we can't come to him through this covenant because we're not perfect. We're all guilty. So how does it work? Well, then we come to the next covenant. There's also the covenant with Noah, but I got to skip that. And we're now with the covenant with Abraham. And here we are introduced to a little more clear understanding of God's grand plan. He comes to Abraham. And Abraham was not perfect, was he? No, he wasn't. But in Genesis 15, it says he believed in God. And God counted his faith as righteousness. So we see here, here's how it can work. You see, Abraham, he wasn't perfect. He didn't live up to the perfect standards, did he? In fact, even after this event, the guy went and lied about his wife. He was a putz. Okay? Twice he did that. But yet, but because, it wasn't because of his works, it was because of his faith in God that God counted his faith as righteousness, as the perfect righteousness that he needed under the covenant of works. You see how that works? And so that, here we're introduced to this aspect of faith, salvation by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ. Paul refers to this passage in, Genesis, or in uh, um, Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4. But then we're introduced to the next covenant, the covenant with Moses. As you're reading through the Bible, we see the covenant with Moses. And, and they have some weird, strange laws and so forth because this was a temporary covenant, according to Galatians chapter 3. But it does introduce us to the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system shares with us how God can be just but still forgive us. And that is, he allows substitution. You see, when they offered the animal, they placed their hands on the animal, signifying the transference of their sins onto the animal, and then the animal was killed. Remember, the, the penalty for sin is death. And so we saw that. Now, we know from the book of Hebrews that those animals didn't actually bring about forgiveness. They simply pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate 
substitute, and that is Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the covenant with David uh, that Phil prayed about in his prayer. The covenant with David that one of his descendants would be Messiah. And ultimately, according to Isaiah 53, Messiah would be, he was perfect, lived the perfect life, but then he became our substitute and was killed in our place. He paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. Jesus experienced the wrath of God while on the cross so that we wouldn't have to experience the wrath of God. And then we see the prediction of the new covenant and the new covenant that Jesus brought to us where he died on the cross paying the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. It's a brilliant plan where God is holy and just but he's also the justifier of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. But it is all about the heart. You see, even under the old covenant, when they offered the sacrifices, if they didn't come with a heart of repentance and faith, the sacrifice was, was worthless. And same with Jesus Christ. We come to him with a heart of repentance and faith in Christ and him alone for our salvation. Then it is applied in our behalf. Because God is a just God. We make and in his commentary on Revelation, Daniel Aiken, he says, the apocalypse is fully in agreement. God is never arbitrary, capricious, or vengeful in his judgment. He is always fair, just, and true. He is the only bar of perfect justice. There is a logic and rightness in his judgment. We glorify him in his righteous wrath. Because these people here, as we will see, did not receive the offer of life and of forgiveness. And so verses 8 through 11, we see what the response of the unbelievers is to God's wrath. Let's read verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. Notice God is in control of the plagues, but they refused to repent. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Notice more nature out of control, but under God's control. The sun scorching them. Uh, is that, you know, is that uh, you know, something to do with the, 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 the ozone layer or whatever? We don't know, but God is in control of it. Darkness actually bringing pain upon them. But the thing I want us to notice is that these unbelievers do not receive the protection and provision that was promised them by the Antichrist and his mark. Remember, they embraced his idea, his worldview of globalism. They embraced the idea that he could be, a, the Antichrist would be a benevolent dictator and that his economic system was what was going to be the benefit of the world. They embraced that and it did not come through. 
They also embraced the false religion of the false prophet that he introduced. Because, but false religions cannot help. Now these are not innocent victims. Do not say, oh, they were just deceived and so poor guys. No, that is exactly what they wanted to believe. And we know that by their response. We know that as we've walked through the book of Revelation, we've seen the great revival that took place when both the Jewish and Gentile believers shared the gospel. And we see this great revival. We also saw the angelic witness when the angels were witnessing to them. So they heard it, multiple opportunities to repent. And instead, they embraced this false worldview of globalism and went down that road. And it didn't. They refused to repent and give God glory. It's tragic. It mentions that twice. They refused to repent and glorify Him. They refused to repent of what they had done. You see, repentance is absolutely critical for true salvation to take place. But these people were incorrigible. Proverbs 29 verse 1 describes this. Let's take a look at that. Proverbs 29, verse 1, we see the description of those beyond hope. It says, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Incorrigible. They refused to repent and give God glory. And you say, what is repentance? We have to come to God with a heart of repentance and faith. That's what he accepts. To repent, it's fairly simple. Metanoia is the Greek word. It means a change of heart and mind about your sin. Uh, it means you see your sin as bad. You wish you wouldn't have done it, and you don't want to do it again. That's a simple, simple way of asking yourself, have you repented? Do you see your sin as bad? Do you wish you wouldn't have done it? Do you not want to do it again? Now notice this doesn't refer to actions. This doesn't mean that you stop sinning. It doesn't mean that tomorrow you won't do the same sin again because we all live in this flesh, the sinful nature that, that we struggle with, but we do have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us overcome that. But where is your heart? Do you see sin as bad or do you say, no, I like it? Do you wish you wouldn't have done it? Or do you say, I'm glad I did it? Do you wish you wouldn't, and you, do you not want to do it again or do you have every plan of committing it again tomorrow? It's a matter of the heart. This is where their heart was, a heart that wasn't repentant. These verses that I have written down there, they all reveal that repentance is absolutely essential for real salvation. That it really is, for all intents and purposes, the, the, other, the, you know, the two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. That's the true heart that, brings, that receives God's gift of salvation. It's not a work. Matthew 3, 8 makes that very clear. Uh, John the Baptist, he recognized some people that were coming that weren't truly repentant. And he said, show me fruit from your repentance. Speaking of good works, see, the good works don't save you at all, but they reveal the person who truly has been saved. Because when you trust in Christ, he comes in and he begins to do a great work in you. But if there's no fruit, then there's no true repentance 
And so he calls us to repent and to give God glory, yet they refused. And in light of this, I mean, this is a tragic passage of Scripture. This is what's going to happen in the end. So what should our response be now? I said this at the beginning of my message. This devastation should break our hearts and move us to action. Where we do not just go and live life as if this isn't going to happen. We want to make as big a difference as we possibly can on as many people as possible so that they'll miss this and experience that rapture we saw in chapter 14. That's what we want to do. And so, in light of this, I would say, first of all, be slow to anger. Be slow. If God is slow to anger, then we should be slow to anger. Use reason rather than emotional outbursts. Even in persecution. Uh, the voice of the martyrs, uh, Richard Wormbrand, he's the, begin- he's the one who founded the voice of the martyrs. Uh, it's actually celebrating 50 years this ministry has been going on. And, uh, and he, he has a little insight here at the beginning when he was persecuted. He says, in the year 1948, on a Sunday while I went to church, I was kidnapped by the communists. I knew that even in the van of the secret police... I am in the hands of the Almighty God, and this gave quiet to my heart. Isn't that beautiful? And he was abused, and he was hurt, and, and stuck in prison for years because of his faith in Christ. And yet here's his response. Look at what he says here. 30 feet beneath the earth in strict isolation, not knowing a thing about what was happening in the world above, I expressed my concern for spreading the gospel on all continents, my love toward the communists, and my burning desire that they, along with those they oppressed, might be saved. Basically, I dreamt in that solitary cell about an international mission to the communist world. It seemed the vain fantasy of a sick mind. You see his heart? He's being abused. He's being beaten, in prison for years by these people, and yet he says he loves them. He prays for them. His one desire is that they would be saved. And he thinks of this ministry that he could be a part of. This international ministry of reaching the persecutors. And that's exactly what he did. Isn't that cool? (laughs) That's thinking big. That's not wasting your life. So be slow to anger. James 1.19 says, be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to become angry. That's a tough one. I had to repent yesterday of that. Be slow to anger and share the gospel now. Share the gospel now. You see, hearts harden over time. By the time it gets to this place in chapter 16... It's too, it's too far gone. And so we want to share the gospel now. And I would say especially reach the young. Their hearts are still moldable. We need to pour our lives into our youth and our young adults. And let me say this, youth and young adults, don't wait. Get on fire for God now. You can be used by God to make a huge difference because people 
your age will listen to you if you'll just open your mouth and stop doing this. Okay. All right. Make a difference. Share the gospel now. Now, I, want to do, I do want to say this. It doesn't mean that the old are too far gone. That is not true. Until the very end, until they die or this very end happens, people still have an opportunity to share their faith. I've seen many people come to Christ at the very end of their life. But you have to share the gospel with them because there's no other way by which people can be saved except through the name of Jesus. And so share the gospel now. Pray. We have to be a people of prayer. We can't do this on our own. But with prayer, and prayer specifically for revival, stuff can happen. And then finally I would say surrender. Who is on the throne of your heart? Because it's either God or it's you. And that's what we need to ask ourselves. And it's so easy to invite God up there and then to slip back up on the throne. I want to read from uh, a book that I highly recommend to absolutely everybody on the planet. Crazy Love by Francis Chan. I, I bet they have it in, you, in uh, Russian. Okay. Let me read something. He starts his book out. He says this. But before we look at what is wrong and address it, we need to understand something. The core problem isn't the fact that we're lukewarm, half-hearted, or stagnant Christians. The crux of it all is why we are this way, and it is because we have an inaccurate view of God. We see him as a benevolent being who is satisfied when people manage to fit him into their lives in some small way. We forget that God never had an identity crisis. He knows that he's great and deserves to be the center of our lives. Jesus came humbly as a servant, but he never begs us to give him some small part of ourselves. He commands everything from his followers. And then he ends his book with this statement. As a result, I've made it a commitment to consistently put myself in situations that scare me and require God to come through. When I survey my life, I realize that those times have been the most meaningful and satisfying of my life. They were the times when I truly experienced life and God. Put yourself in situations that scare you and require God to come through. I think of uh, Allie when she's uh, sharing with her um, atheist professors and stuff, you know. That's what I'm talking about, all right? God is calling us to live like this. Let me ask you a question. Can you go for a run or a fast jog while eating a box of Twinkies? You can't, can you? You can only do one or the other. You either live for God or you live for self. You cannot do both. Surrender is where true satisfaction comes. Let's pray. Father, we do repent. We ask you to forgive us for the many times in which we've crawled back up on the throne. And instead of giving you glory, we sought glory ourselves. Help us. 
We believe Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we deserve to pay. And so we're trusting in you, Jesus. We are not trusting in ourselves at all. Because only you can provide complete and perfect forgiveness. So we trust in you, but we want to be used. We see that perhaps we're getting close to the end of time. We don't want to waste our lives anymore. We want to see lives changed. And we know that if we step out in your strength and in your power, that you'll soften hearts. And people will be saved. Become disciples of Jesus. Please use us. And I pray that if there's anyone here right now who doesn't know you, maybe they know about you, but they don't know you personally, they have not experienced your forgiveness through repentance and faith, I pray you draw them to yourself right now. Help them see that you are good, that you have provided a way of escape, that they can turn to you right now and say, I'm sorry. I believe, come into my life. Ah, what a prayer. Thank you.